I hear it. <laughs> we didn't use the uh, lapel mic this morning because there was some buzzing and the batteries were dead, but we're giving it a shot tonight, but I think I hear it again already, but uh, we'll just see how it goes. Maybe it's only me. Maybe the buzzing's in my head. I'm sure most of us are familiar with the ancient Middle Eastern folk tale of Aladdin. Aladdin was the son of a poor tailor. And after his father died, a wicked sorcerer appeared, claiming to be his long-lost uncle. And he told him, he persuaded him to go after an old oil lamp that was hidden away in a cave. Aladdin did that. He got the lamp, but he was mistrustful of that sorcerer. Something didn't seem right, and so he didn't give him the lamp. And that enraged the sorcerer so that he sealed Aladdin in the cave and left him there to die. Of course, the short version of the story then is Aladdin discovered the lamp contained a magic genie who had the power to grant all of his wishes. And over the course of the story, Aladdin becomes fabulously rich. He marries the sultan's daughter. He defeats that wicked sorcerer and actually his bigger, badder, more evil brother and everyone lives happily ever after. That's an old story that's captured the imagination of people for centuries. Disney made it into an animated movie when I was a, a boy, although uh, looking around the audience here, you're maybe not the targets for that. Uh, some of you have probably seen it with uh, your children or perhaps your grandchildren. But uh, then again, they're also remaking every single one of those uh, into live-action versions. There's actually a live-action version of Aladdin slated to come out next year. Point is, this is a, a story that remains popular. Why is that? Well, I suppose it could be because Aladdin's a sort of underdog, and we like to root for the underdog. You know, this young ne'er-do-well who comes from nothing, and we want to see him uh, rise to the top. But I imagine... Mostly, it has to do with those wishes, that magic genie. We would all like the ability to be able to wish for whatever we want and to have that granted to us right there at our fingertips. Of course, we know that's not reality. Life doesn't work that way. If we want something, we have to work for it. If we have hopes and dreams, things that we want to accomplish, we have to go out and try to seize those things for ourselves. And that's all well and good as far as it goes, but I think that here, a lot of people throughout human history, to be fair, but particularly in our society, have gone off course. We get our priorities out of whack. We spend so much time in pursuit of things, those things that we want, that we become consumed by them, and we lose sight of what truly matters. We seek gold while dismissing God. We seek health rather than holiness. We seek to clothe ourselves in the latest fashions rather than clothing ourselves in righteousness. And then at the end of all of that pursuit of things, people wonder why they're still desperately unhappy, discontented, when they've left God out of all of their planning. 
And with that in mind, I want us to begin by noting a passage that most all of us here tonight know from the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus says we need to discard our, our nervous stomachs, our manipulations, and allow, allow him to have his proper seat on the throne of our hearts. And then all of these things that we worry about will be added to us. We all know this verse. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Jesus says. That's one of those things that we all know and is much easier said than done. We have a natural tendency to seek things rather than to seek after God. But things can never give us direction in life. Things can never give us purpose. Things can never fill the, the void that's within us. They can never comfort us in a lasting way. But, you know, so often we focus on those things that we want. We think that whatever it is, that one thing, if I could just have that, that's the missing piece. And if I got that, everything would be all right. It could be a promotion at work. It could be a new job in a new place. It could be an experience, whether it's a vacation, a place you wanted to go to, or whether it's, you know, looking back, a dream wedding or something like that. It could be a new car. It could be a new house. Whatever it is, something, we think that that's it. If I just had that, well, well, then I'd have it made. Then I'd be content. I'd be happy. And yet, what we find is that's not the case at all. There's just one other thing then that we want. That wasn't quite it. It's always just beyond our reach. When we leave God out of the picture and are grasping at things, we'll never be content at all. I contrast that Think about another familiar story. Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knew precisely what lay ahead of him. The pain, the humiliation, the suffering, the agony that awaited him. And if he could have anything that he wanted, it would be to avoid that. And so he prayed to God. Desperately wanted to be taken away, but Listen to his prayer. You know this. Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. 
and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus wanted that one thing, to avoid the cross more than anything in the world, and yet he still submitted to God's will. There's a great example for us there. We need to spend time like that in prayer. Not just telling God what it is we want from him. I want this, I want that. Sometimes we treat God uh, sort of like Santa Claus or like an indulgent grandfather. We're just going to climb up in his lap and tell him all the things that we want. But instead, we need to try to seek his will, to discern what it is he wants for our lives. We need to spend time in Scripture, studying His Word, allowing Him to teach us about His love and His justice and His mercy and His grace. And when we seek after God, when we spend time pursuing a relationship with Him in prayer, when we spend time studying His Word, when we long for His presence and want Him to change us and to mold us and to shape us, what we'll find is He does just that. He really does change us. Those things that used to have power over us, they don't anymore. All of those petty concerns, the anxieties that we had, they begin to lose their sway. Those, those troubles that used to unravel us, they begin to lose their importance when we put things into the longer divine perspective. Take, for example, uh, one of the most common emotions that people feel in times of trouble, and actually David mentioned it specifically in his prayer tonight, loneliness. When we go through hard times, whatever the root cause of them, we often feel so alone, isolated, as if we have no one that we can depend upon. We might even feel like God has abandoned us. We talked about that in our lesson this morning, if you were here. Now, Lord, if you'd been here, our brother wouldn't have died. And sometimes we feel like that, like we prayed and prayed and we cried out and God's just not there. Our energy's gone. We feel completely isolated. We might even wonder if God's forsaken us. The psalmist in the 77th Psalm experienced those same emotions. And I want you to listen to some of this psalm. Verse 1, he says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? You hear the anguish here? He feels like God's forgotten him, like he's completely abandoned him. And his soul is so troubled, he thinks maybe God's promises have failed. Maybe sometimes we feel that way. But then he began remembering what God had done. He said, I will appeal to this. 
to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. What a transformation this is, this turn of events. This is the transformation we need in our lives. And you notice this transformation comes through prayer. Make no mistake about it, this is a prayer. He begins, I cry aloud to God. Prayer changes things. Prayer changes us. That's what Jesus saw in the garden. That's what the psalmist sees here. Prayer draws us into the will of God. It shows us what His will is and where we've gone off track with that. And it gives us then the desire to walk in His will. Or listen to one more example from the Psalms. More briefly, the 119th Psalm, verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. I entreat your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your promise. When I think on my ways, I turn my feet to your testimonies. I hasten and do not delay to keep your commandments. Though the cords of the wicked ensnare me, I do not forget your law. At midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. I am a companion of all who fear you, of those who keep your precepts. The earth, O Lord, is full of your steadfast love. Teach me your statutes. What motivated the psalmist to turn to God here in prayer to entreat Him? What motivated him to give praise to God and to give thanks for His righteous law? What enabled him to see that the earth, as he says, is filled with God's love? It's when he sought God and he realized that His steadfast love was for him, that God cared, that He really was there. That steadfast love, that loving kindness or, or mercy, your translation may say. So we need to seek the Lord. And when we do, we find out that, that He really does change us. He molds us to want to be more like Him and to follow His ways. But of course, there are times when we feel like we're almost unworthy to seek God. There are people who've reached a point in their lives that they feel things are, are such a mess. They've gone so far off track. They've wallowed in sin for so long, or maybe they've just neglected God for so long. They haven't been overtly bad, but they just haven't thought about God. They feel that it, it's too late for them to turn to Him. They feel that they have no right to approach God at all. Of course, we know that God sees our deeds. He sees our hearts. He knows the innermost thoughts and desires that we have. He knows that we've all sinned. We've all fallen short. That's the very reason that He sent Christ into the world to die for us, for our sins. Brother Taylor prayed something like that in his prayer this morning. The fact that we look around and we see all of creation and realize what a great, magnificent God we have, and yet He still cared so much for us. He condescended to us. 
to send Christ into the world to die for us. Jesus didn't go to the cross because we were good people. It's just the opposite. He went to the cross because we had no hope, but God still loved us. And there was no other way. And I think just here, if we ever find ourselves in this situation thinking that we've gone somewhere off track or, or our spirituality just feels dry and dusty and we're distant from God and, and maybe he's not even interested in us anymore, it would do well for us to remember the story of Manasseh. If you've been wondering when we're going to bring it back around to Second Chronicles that we read at the beginning or how we're going to get back to an Old Testament king or prophet like we've been looking at, this is the way. Manasseh is probably less well-known than Aladdin. <laughs> I don't know if uh, all of you remember his story. Maybe you don't at all. So whether we do or not, we're going to briefly tell it. Manasseh was king of Judah, the southern kingdom, in the 7th century B.C. He was not a good king. You remember that Judah had eight kings that were good. Israel had none. Manasseh was the son of a good king, Hezekiah, great and godly man, one that we talked about on Sunday night some weeks ago. But even though Manasseh came from that godly home, he chose to turn his back on God. He became king and he reigned for 55 years, which was the longest reign of any of the kings of Judah. But his reign was a, a horrible time the nation. Not only did he turn from God, but he actually tried to stamp out worship of the one true God. According to Jewish tradition, he had the prophet Isaiah executed by being sawn in two. Uh, if you read in uh, Hebrews chapter 11, in that hall of fame of the heroes of faith, and when he gets down, you know, time would fail to tell of all those who various different things have happened to. He mentions those who've been sawn asunder. That's probably a reference to Isaiah. According to tradition, he had him killed by sawing him in half. Just a horrible, gruesome thing. You, you can find his story and a depiction of some of these detestable practices in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And I, I want to read just a part of this to you this evening. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. And he reigned for 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and he made Asherahs, and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Now, we've mentioned this before, and this is gruesome, but these are sacrifices to the uh, Canaanite god Molech. They would sacrifice their children. And this was done with a, an idol that was made of, of iron, hollow on the inside in the form of a bull with his arms outstretched. And they would burn a fire within, and it would superheat that metal, and they would lay the children on the arms there of the idol while they were alive and it would burn them uh, while still living. It, it's just a horrible, disgusting thought. He used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery. He dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. 
and the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God. So there's the pinnacle of it. Not only did he sacrifice his own children in this despicable way, he even put idols in the temple. He desecrated the temple. All of these terrible things. And then one day the king of Assyria came down and he captured Jerusalem. Verse 11 tells us what happened. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. That binding with hooks, your translation might say a hook through the nose. That's what we're talking about here, just like you would with a a bull. Ring through there, leading him about by that. It's uh, not only extremely physically painful, but it's a symbol of his humiliation. Manasseh's a prisoner. His power is completely gone. His arrogance suddenly vanishes right along with him. And now, at this low point, he's finally able to listen to God. When he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Manasseh humbled himself. Manasseh prayed. He sought out that relationship with the Lord. And you notice here what the text says, when he sought the favor of the Lord his God and he humbled himself, what did he find? He found God was available. There wasn't any probationary period due to his sins. There wasn't any time of waiting to make sure that this was real or genuine. God answered his prayer. God restored his kingdom to him. And when Manasseh returned to Jerusalem, the text says in verse 15, he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem, and he threw them outside the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving, and he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Scripture tells us that God was moved by the prayer of Manasseh. And even though he had strayed so far away, even though he had turned his back on God, God never abandoned him. God was eagerly waiting for him to turn back, to repent, to call upon his name like he did. And the same thing is true for anyone who's wandered away from God today, no matter how far. My dad told me a story yesterday that I hadn't heard before. I saw him visited with him. And he was telling me about uh, his grandfather, my great-grandfather. He was a preacher. You can't, you can't shake our family tree without preachers falling out in bushels. He was a, the preacher in Center, Texas, back in the 50s, and he had a, a radio program. And then in the 70s, he was holding a meeting somewhere. And a fellow responded, asked to be baptized, and he told him, I lived in Center back in the 50s, and I used to listen to you preach on the radio, and you converted me back then. It just took me 20 years to actually come around and decide 
to make my life right. That's a powerful real-world example. That's what we see with Manasseh. And that's a good reminder for all of us. If we're not in a right relationship with God, it's never too late to get back in that right place. So if you're here this evening and you've never come to Him, I want to urge you to do that tonight. But I know looking around this room, many of us, most of us, already are Christians, but maybe you haven't put God at that first place in your life. Maybe you've been seeking things rather than seeking after Him. We desperately need to seek God with all of our hearts. We need to seek that relationship with Him. We need to have a, a relationship uh, formed by prayer to Him. We need to seek His will in the Scripture. We need to, in all things, allow Him to rule and to reign in our lives. So this evening, if you need to make changes in your life to put Him in that first place, won't you allow God to work and to reign to rule in your life tonight. Won't you seek Him first? If you need to make changes this evening, it's the Lord's invitation while we stand and sing.